Feminist Buzzkills, the show that has yet again been snubbed by the Oscars. Again? Again. <laughs> Does this podcast direct itself? I don't know. <laughs> I'm Liz Winstead. And as always, I'm joined by my illustrious co-host, Moji Alawodale. Hello. On today's show, we are talking with Florida Representative Anna Eskamani about the landscape of abortion in the Sunshine State. And we're going to break down something called abortion trafficking, the latest legislative scheme anti-abortion politicians have cooked up to criminalize folks helping someone access care. Plus, from RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, Shea Coulee stops by to talk about freedom, fashion, and hitting the road February 22nd on their Love Ball Tour. Yay! Yay! What a show! And so much more! Before we get to all the fun stuff, though, have you been paying attention to any of the airline goings-ons? Because it's a wild time to fly. I have not, and I would like to pay attention because I have to get on a plane. I'm literally traveling 20 out of 29 days in February this month. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, don't get on Alaska Airlines. <laughs> uh, well, I did see that, like, bolts are flying off, like somebody assembled it at Ikea. Somebody unskilled has assembled them at Ikea. Basically, in early January, a, a door just came off. But then Alaska recently went and looked at, like, all of their Boeing fleet, and they just have loose bolts everywhere like the same kind of plane loose bolts abound it's a little terrifying there's a there's a tiktoker i follow and she said like in december or some or sometime earlier in the year she was like i don't fly like boeing's and i was like that sounds a little extreme and now i'm like oh she knew exactly what she was talking about uh yeah that story what made you bring up that story because that one's been around it's been around it's not at all new i brought it up because i was just like we haven't talked about airline flights and i knew you were going to fly soon and I also read something that was even more funny to me, which was um, American Airlines had to turn a plane back around a few days ago because of excessive farting on the plane. Apparently one person was just doing the most so much. I don't even know what that level of fartation is, Liz. I mean, here's the deal. Those altitudes and stuff, it is widely known that it causes flatulence. Flying causes flatulence. Just the whole cabin pressure situation. So, but I just don't know what level of one person's farting that can pollute a plane. So much that it has to turn around. Wow. I've definitely farted on a plane. Uh, I think I've had a farting moment on a plane. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if other people noticed. Maybe they did. I mean, I don't think enough to turn this plane around because someone <laughs> is just god awful with the ripping. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if it smelled so bad, it felt like it, it trans the, the noxious smell transitioned into like, is this some kind of explosive? Are you an explosive device? I think it smelled so bad that the fellow passengers were commenting and telling that person that they smelled disgusting. It seems like it was kind of hilarious and also terrible. Plane travel, the greyhounds <laughs> of the sky. It is no longer, it's not the same anymore. It has changed. Well, let's move on. But before we do, I just want to, I just want to drop one thing I'm kind of excited about for those in the Twin Cities. I am joining my college roommate and dear friend, Michelle Norris, whose new book is out called Hidden Conversations. And I will be doing a reading with her in the Twin Cities during the Westminster Forum. And I'm really, really excited to be reading from her book with a bunch of really incredible Twin Cities luminaries and Michelle herself. So that's February 1st at the Westminster Forum. If you just go to the Westminster Forum, mnhum.org slash events, you'll find it. And we'll also have a link to it in our show notes. Yes. 
let's get to the rest of the show because we got a lot to cover. We do. Let's start with Molly sorting through some of the biggest abortion news that dropped this week. Hey, Molly. Hey, Molly. Thanks, friends. Welcome back to another steaming news dump. This one might be so bad, you might have to turn this podcast around. (laughs) My God. Apologies in advance. Not my fault. (laughs) A Kentucky lawmaker has introduced some batshit sex ed requirements for their public school. Meet baby Olivia, an AI rendered developing fetus. Now, in this bill, a video of baby Olivia would be required by law to be shown to children to teach them that from the moment of conception, a fetus is already the same size as Kevin Hart. (laughs) Now, the video was not produced by any medical organization, oh no, but by none other than Live Action, the notorious anti-abortion group that participated in the Planned Parenthood baby parts videos and promotes that pregnant people should put off cancer treatment till after the birth. So if you want God to be your oncologist and your kid's sex ed teacher, these are your peeps, okay? <laughs> and up in North Dakota, if you are pregnant, you can far go straight to hell. Nice pun. <laughs> mm-hmm, that's a good one. North Dakota's strict six-week abortion ban is both in full effect and currently being challenged in court. Awkward. This week, doctors asked the judge to allow them to use their medical judgment to intervene when life-saving abortions are needed past six weeks. And the judge said, nah. We're going to let them die until we officially announce we're going to let them die. Real nice guy. Pulling out of North Dakota and entering Wisconsin, we're reminded that these regressive zealots aren't just a Southern problem. In Wisconsin, an off-brand Reba McIntyre has co-authored a 14-week abortion ban with zero exceptions for rape and incest survivors. This Wisconsin mom for liberty says, quote, a 14-week time frame is a long enough time frame to make a decision. And if not, she said, quote, maybe they just don't want to know. I don't know. Yikes. You don't know? Okay, here's an idea. Stick to what you do know. Okay, scratch that, because the only thing you seem to know is how to ban books you haven't read and buying wigs by the pound at a Carrot Top garage sale. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. This has been your steaming news dump. She's the worst. Worst. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, okay. She's awful. What is her name again? Amanda Nedweski. Yeah, that tracks. Amanda yeah. Nedweski, go Packers. <laughs> That's the way it sounds in her home language. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. She said some heinous stuff. She also said that she believes that abortion at one week is equally as tragic as ending a single life whenever. That doesn't make any sense. I know, Moji. I know, I'm just a messenger. <laughs> you can't have an abortion at one week. Thank you, Liz. She said that you can find out you're pregnant right away. So she believes you can have an abortion at one week. She thinks you I can mean, find out right away? Right away. Does she know something we don't know? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> she has access to a medical technology that we've never heard of. That's what I mean. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Amanda Nadweski knows things we don't know. She does, you know, right there. You can just go get your abortion right there at one week. It's really a crime. <laughs> Fuck her and her stupid wigs. You know, I hate to have ad hominem attacks, but like, you know, we'll put her picture in the show notes just so you can actually be cheap ass petty with us because she literally looks like like if Raggedy Ann was like, I don't know. More raggedy. <laughs> More raggedy. Yeah. Extra raggedy. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Thanks, Molly, Thanks, for guys. all the great news. Thank you, Molly. 
All right, let's get to the stories that we want to break down further because we got a bunch of them. I just want to say up front that there's a career warning and a content warning for this because we're going to talk about sexual assault. And so if you need some space for that, take that. We want to talk about this because there was a recent study that came out and anti-abortion people love to pretend that exceptions for victims of sexual assault is a way to soften their bans and make them sound compassionate. But a recent study of the states with full abortion bans, that's about 14, concluded that post-ops, 65,000 pregnancies were products of rape. That, that number alone is terrifying. And of the five states that have rape exceptions, only about 10 people a month could legally access abortion care in their state. And I just found that news heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And statistically, I think that one of the reasons that it's so high is in these same states that totally ban abortion, you know, since we all know it's about control and shaming and all this other stuff, the way that you have to, you have to prove you were raped in most of these states, there's laws. And Moji, like to break it down further, the state of Texas has 26,000 of this 65,000 are from Texas, right? And Texas has no rape exception. So think about this. The, these are some of the laws in Texas that if you're raped and you have a child, you like you don't go out of state different abortion, you have a child, you have to petition the court to make sure your rapist doesn't have access to that child. The grandparents of that child or the parents of the rapist are granted access to that child. You know, then they also, if you are try if you wanted to terminate, they they're trying to enact all these laws where you can't drive on certain roads in Texas, sanctuary cities for the unborn. And then of course there's the bounty hunting laws that we've talked about where if you try to help somebody get out of state to get an abortion, you could be fined ten thousand dollars and go to jail. So making it inaccessible, even if there was exceptions, mm -hmm. the fact that these some of these states are forcing you to prove you were raped to begin with in the states that have exceptions. It's really just really traumatizing. Yeah, the re the proving that you 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 were raped, that proving that you had an assault is definitely re-traumatizing. And I think it it leads to a reluctance for some. So like this number could be vastly undercounted, right? Because of the vast majority of people who just don't want to go through the system, who don't want to report it, who just take a shower and if they're fortunate, talk to their therapist, right? Yep. Yeah. But the other problem with, for the people who are in states that have exceptions is that doctors don't want to perhaps do wrong. A lot of states have like affirmative defense, which means you do the abortion. But if for whatever reason, a prosecutor decides that maybe they disagree, you have to fight it. Right. And you and the, the penalties are so heavy in some of these states, uh, jail time, thousands of dollars. And in light of this, realizing that as a movement, a lot of people in the anti-abortion movement are trying to move away from exceptions at all is particularly horrifying and particularly terrifying. The growth of the sort of abolitionist wing of the movement where it's like everyone gets the highest course of prosecution. If that's the death penalty, that's the death penalty. When I say everyone, I mean someone who helped somebody get an abortion, a person having an abortion, anybody who participated in giving someone the abortion. Very terrifying. When we were watching the March for Life last week, I saw a sign someone had. It said, from conception, no exceptions. And it chilled me to my bow. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I still, it's still stuck with me because that phrase alone, I have, it hasn't reached peak popularity yet, but I see it coming, you know? It, it will. And even just like, you know, that idiot that Molly was talking about from Wisconsin and, and like her cavalier, like people who are pregnant 14 weeks, maybe they know and they just don't care. I don't know. You know, it's that whole, I don't know. I just have feelings. 
And those kind of ignorant people who don't know anything, that's how they're speaking. And there was another study done just this week, just on the side of this, that said people who do not understand how pregnancy works are the most anti-abortion people. I mean, it's not surprising, but ignorance around pregnancy can lead to so many cavalier notions about abortion and why people have them and why they don't and all of it. And so that is just a, a stat that broke this week. And it was so jarring to all of us because it's just such a big number and a comprehensive number. And like you said, those are just the people that they could contact for the study. Exactly. And we know that sexual assault is prevalent, but just seeing those numbers just was a lot. And those are just the pregnancies, right? The actual assaults that they clocked were closer to 500,000. It was over 500,000. Right. Yeah. Let's move on to something um, not great also, but... Oh, also not great. You actually touched on it before, though, and it's uh, travel bans, right? These travel bans that are coming. These are mostly directed towards minors. So Oklahoma and Tennessee have decided to follow Idaho's lead and redefine helping minors access abortion as abortion trafficking, which is not a thing. Uh, These state legislators walked into 2024 unbothered by the fact that abortion bans are unpopular with voters, blatantly unconstitutional, and that bans harm pregnant people. And they said, let's go in. So we spoke about this before, but the Idaho abortion trafficking bill that these bills are modeled after uh, was blocked from enforcement by a judge in November because, as I said, These are a free speech violation and a right to interstate travel violation. All those are federal violations. This language is so broad. You know, just the idea that you conflate human trafficking with bringing someone to have your abortion. And, you know, as like all of the shit that they write, you know, this broad language and vague language about like, what exactly are the activities that are banned? And it's some of the stuff that we've talked about before, right? Which is like, you know, driving someone or, you know, giving someone bus fare or even texting someone links. But any way that you probably forgot to think of is the way they'll get you, right? Like it's every single way that you would communicate with someone or give someone money or refer them. Like referring them. If you and I were having a conversation, Moji, and you said, I'm thinking of having an abortion, and I said this to you, who knows if this podcast could be be indicted or banned from Tennessee Mm -hmm. because we offer constantly ways and help. Who knows if abortion access front in our Charlie chatbot, which we have a we have a whole page on our website where you just can get a, a little guy pops up or I don't know what gender it is, but a little bot pops up and explains to you, you ask it questions, it can get you to an abortion, it can get you funding for your abortion. It's incredible. But is that going to be banned in these states? Well, you know, we haven't even gotten, and we're not going to the show, get to the internet bans that are also on the table in some right. places. Right? That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but we couldn't probably do this podcast in Idaho right, or in Tennessee or in Oklahoma. I really want to talk about the harm and sort of the impact because because uh, when you really think about like the impact of this on on minors, right? It's basically at a time when a person really needs help, right? I, I remember being a teenager, a young adult and suspecting I was pregnant and 
the fact that I could talk to another adult, well, talk to an adult, talk to, or even my peers about things I could do was incredibly helpful. And the idea that you just can't, right? That you won't know who to trust and anyone could decide to just turn you in if you talk to them, right? Like this is yeah. a it's, little And terrifying. it's also reducing minors to, again, another class of person with yeah. less rights. And I know minors have less rights in certain ways because they are not of age to do certain things. You know, you have to be a certain age to drive a car and drink and things like that. But I would say that having ownership of your body should always be a right that you have. And the Tennessee law in particular could even pit parents against each other, right? So mm -hmm. if, if a father decides to take their child to get an abortion, the mother could sue <laughs> the father for taking their child to get an abortion. Yeah. And we haven't even hit on what the penalties are. You want to go over that? Yeah. The penalties are pretty stiff in Tennessee. It's up to 15 years in prison. And again, this could be for something as simple as texting a link to a website uh, where, where a minor could find information about how to seek an abortion. And that's in Tennessee, right? They have the harshest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In Oklahoma, it's two years minimum, five years maximum. So Tennessee, I don't know what the minimum is, but Oklahoma, you're doing at least two years. I, I just feel like these bills, they isolate minors, like you said. And I just feel like when we look at cases like the mother and daughter in Nebraska, you know, this stuff's already happening where a mother tried to help her daughter and they both are in jail. <laughs> because a friend decided to tip off the police. Then this is what I mean. It, it makes you unclear who to talk to, right? Mm -hmm. It makes every place unsafe. Imagine if you had to, you know, travel out of state for abortion care. I feel like I would want to talk about this with my close friends. But when you have a rule like this on the books, you kind of can't talk to anyone. And if you're a teen, sometimes like, you know, teens can be clicky and gossip. Like I got pregnant in high school. I didn't tell any of my friends because I was terrified it would be the hottest goss going on in high school regardless. Right. And so I just kept it to myself and I ended up at a fake clinic because I kept it to myself, you know, and ended up going by myself and I didn't have any support at all. And so I just want to hit back home that the co-opting of so much language that waters it down, like when we talk about human trafficking, like that's something that we should be fighting against. And that's something that we should mm -hmm. never taint. I feel that way about the word slavery too. I feel like don't throw like slavery around. Don't throw abolition around. Like there are words that have meaning mm -hmm. and what that is. And when the right wing co-ops them, they become less important and they can be weaponized. I 100% agree, Liz. I 100% agree. So let's move on to a big old chunk mouthful of a story. Oh my gosh. That, um, could really overturn the world as we know it. And uh, like all of these cases before this Supreme Court, that'll re overturn the world as we know it. No one's really talking about it. Well, and it's a case that's kind of convoluted. So listeners, bear with me on this. I'm going to try to explain this massive thing and then tie it back to how it makes sense. And I'm not a legal expert, but let's see how I do it. Right. So in 1984, SCOTUS ruled in a case that was called Chevron v. NRDC that both federal agencies and courts must always follow Congress's laws when they are super clear, unambiguous, everybody understands it. But with this law, they ruled when laws have like maybe more than one reasonable interpretation or a couple of different people see the law differently, 
if that law is going through a court system, then the courts, like the judge, has to defer to the agency that came up with the sort of did all the research and and was the expert in whatever the the law was, right? So that the to prevent a judge from kind of inserting their own like here's what I feel. And so I feel like it's kind of good, right? It's good to say we have a mechanism in place that if a law is created uh, by a government agency ruling that if it's unclear, you go to that agency who are the experts, right? And they and they kind of say, hey, look, I know you're a judge and you're the one that calls balls and strikes, but we have been, you know, our agency has been given power by the Congress to, you know, create these regulations and they consider us experts and so should everybody else, right? Right. This is something that's known now as Chevron deference. The deference meaning we must defer to the experts if it's messy. So you're like, what's going on, Liz? Why is this, <laughs> what's up to the abortion? I'm going to tell you in a minute. <laughs> so right now there's a case before SCOTUS from a herring fishery who is challenging the power of this Chevron deference. And what they're saying is the EPA regulations that they have to follow with their fishing crew are just too much. They're onerous. It costs them a lot of money. It it feels like they're just arbitrary. And they're saying that we don't want to have to defer to the EPA because we think the EPA has just put them out there willy-nilly. And we think the court should be able to say, we agree uh, you shouldn't have to follow this because it's too it's too much for you. They've just done this because they felt like it, right? Right. So that seems like a way to have judges count on this because let's be clear, right-wing judge, judges hate this Chevron deference because it means that it takes the, they think it takes the power from the courts to interpret the law and gives that power to government agencies. And they think that that's some kind of like branches of government usurping of the power of other branches of government. Except wouldn't we want the experts to weigh in about the things that experts are experts in and not let judges who went to law school tell us about the EPA since they probably haven't studied it? A hundred percent. Yes. So I'm telling you the story. Why? Well, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the fishery and says that we have to take power out of the hands of these federal agencies and these experts because they're putting onerous uh you know restrictions or fines or whatever on on these companies that can set a slippery slope for not just this fishery here or environmental people, but also let's talk about how that could play with the case that's going before the Supreme Court right now, the Mifepristone case, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about today in the context of that. So in the Mifi case, the thing that's the most egregious to me is that the case is, you know, this Hippocrat, this whatever they're called, the United Monsters. Of a Hippocrat. bunch of anti-abortion doctors and, and a dentist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have filed a case against the FDA and the manufacturers of Mifepristone. So right off the bat, the people that they would have to defer to is the FDA, right? Who for 20 years has been doing studies and watching and putting this on the market. So they're suing the very entity that the courts would defer to because of their expertise. So right off the bat, 
That seems really sketch. And remember, for those of you who have listened to our podcast and we've followed this case so much, the first court they went into was a court they handpicked by an anti-abortion judge who acted like the Chevron deference didn't even exist. Remember? Yeah. No, he fully ruled based on his feelings about abortion, right? Which yes. were widely known to everyone. And he ruled that they should take mifepristone off the market. Not because the FDA hadn't approved it or not because the FDA hadn't studied, but because he had feelings. That's exactly right. And how the case should have gone is the anti-abortion doctors and the dentist present their case. And because they have a wildly different opinion than the law, the judge should have said, well, why don't we look to see what the experts say? Right. And when the experts actually testified. I don't know what he was doing, but he didn't listen to a word they said. Yeah, he was twiddling his fingers. He was like, yeah, he was counting sheep. Right. And so then the FDA and Mifepristone appeal this ruling and they go to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the most conservative court in the United States. It's just more Kasmerics, basically. And again, they inserted their feelings and didn't pay any mind at all to the FDA, you know, especially in the case that was brought by the anti-abortion doctors and a dentist, uh, the three cases they cited where there was harm caused from abortion pills, those three cases, those people got their pills from India, not through an FDA approved uh, manufacturer. So that should have been like, uh, no, these don't, these are inadmissible because it's, it's, it's literally apples to squirrels. Right. And as we said earlier, you know, the Chevron deference is there so that judges don't just insert their feelings. Well, what happens with the Fifth Circuit? This judge named Matthew Ho says that doctors have aesthetic harm, that abortion harms them aesthetically. As opposed to like unwanted, unplanned, unneeded pregnancy harming a pregnant person. Yeah. And if you've never heard the term aesthetic harm, it's literally. What these doctors and a dentist said was that uh, doctors love seeing babies and seeing fetuses and them not being able to see them causes profound harm to them, which has nothing to do with the medical efficacy of abortion pills. Not a single thing. And so had anybody held Judge Ho accountable and maybe the Supreme Court will, who knows? you know, held Judge Ho accountable to say, why did you not defer this ambiguity to the experts? Instead, you just inserted your own personal opinion, which is exactly why this law is in place. And so far, we have two courts just ignoring it. Yes. Now this case is at the Supreme Court. And there's just a couple of questions we have to ask is, first of all, will SCOTUS defer to the FDA? In this case, you know, will they really listen to the lawyer from the FDA and hold them and their expertise in esteem? I don't know. Also, it even goes back to, you know, again, the first case you talked about is looking at even will Chevron be law of the land by the time they get to Miffy, right? They may yeah. decimate it because one of the things about Chevron is that it keeps judges from having to decide things and maybe they just want more to do. Yeah. And that's also scary, too. And the thing is, if Chevron goes away, the question I have, and I really I think we should bring on one of our legal eagles, is 
if Chevron goes away, does that mean that any crackpot with an axe to grind and really no standing, A, will be granted standing and then speak out like these people did by judge shopping and finding that judge in Texas who is sympathetic? Can they just judge shop and then that they know the judge will insert the feelings that go along with their feelings and all of a sudden facts about our environment or our our healthcare or you know t- look at covid look at like any of it you know can they just have a whole bunch of feelings and then that becomes the law that is the question it it does scare me and the thing that i found interesting in just doing all the research on this is neil gorsuch is one of the biggest haters of the chevron deference and oddly his mom was a big mucky muck at the epa and fought super hard for it but When Gorsuch was on the lower court, he actually explicitly wrote that federal agency's expertise could be used to vacate a court ruling because the agency's expertise was empowered to them by Congress. And that is said to be the final say. And courts interpret laws made by government bodies. So if there are many interpretations, the agency experts should be deferred to and their opinion should be upheld. Now, that is if Chevron exists. Is this one of those times you have me agreeing with Neil Gorsuch? Because I agree with that. I do agree with that. Well, and that's why he wants to get rid of it, because he hates that. Like, he wrote that in an opinion where he's like, I'm so pissed I have to write this. But y'all need to understand, that's how much power the federal agencies have. So it just feels like if it goes away, then the federal agencies aren't going to have that power. But um, they do have that power. And they've never really used it. They're hesitant to use it because it could set a precedent that is just constantly bucking the judicial system, which they don't want to do. But in this case, depending on how SCOTUS rules on the Miffy case, and if Chevron is remains intact, we started a petition based on Chevron to tell the FDA that no matter what the courts rule, if they if the courts rule that badly on this, that the FDA should say, you want to know what? You ruled on bad faith. You didn't rule on the facts. And we're going to keep it on the market because Congress says we can, because our expertise knows more. Our facts know more than your feelings, <laughs> basically, is how that goes. <laughs> so make sure you go to the aafront.org. Uh, when you get to the website, the petition pops right up. You can sign it. And We're just getting as many signatures as we can, and we're going to hold on to that petition and wait for the Supreme Court ruling and wait to see what happens with Chevron deference. But I hope that you understand what it is, and I hope that you understand that how it can really affect the Mifepristone case. So watch for that fishery case. Yeah, it's really important. I think you did a great job, Liz, of uh, taking a big old meaty thing and bite. I was so scared that I was going to be all over the place. And I was like, oh, my God, this seems so hard. But uh, we will definitely put a link to that fishery case in the show notes and a link to how Miffy affects it. There's a really great legal article about it that's written for like regular folks like us. That's really awesome. In fact... All of our stories will be in the show note. And you can find the best, most up-to-the-minute resources on accessing abortion care and funding your care on our website, aafront.org. The Charlie chatbot that Liz was talking about earlier is on the bottom right and will walk anyone, anywhere in the country through their options and resources for abortion. I really hate Chevron deference. <laughs> I'm just going to say, I, I don't want to ever defer to Chevron. I'll tell you that right now. Anyway, yeah, don't. I mean, I just like, yeah, it's a lot. But 
what's really a lot is what's going on in Florida. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. So much is going on in Florida. And we haven't talked to somebody from Florida as the pile on has started happening. And we thought it's about time to get one of our favorite state legislators who is doing the most. So our first guest today is the first Iranian-American elected to statewide office in Florida. She is a state rep for the 42nd District, which includes Orlando, Winter Park, and Maitland. She's a tireless champion of abortion rights and bodily autonomy. And we love that she is here. Please welcome Anna Eskamani. Hey, Anna. Hi, Anna. Hey, thanks for having me. We are so glad you are here because there's so much going on in Florida right now with your governor dropping out of the presidential race and this new litany of abortion bans proposed that we're going to dive into. And you are just biting your nails off waiting to see how your state Supreme Court is going to rule in this 15-week ban case that's before them. And if they do rule, tell us what that means for Florida. Well, you're right, Liz. We have been waiting since September for a decision from this state Supreme Court on Florida's 15-week abortion ban. And that ban has been deemed unconstitutional by the previous judge. Of course, it's still in place because Florida appealed that decision. So though it is unconstitutional, Florida is a 15-week abortion ban state right now. Before lawmakers, last session that ended in May, signed a pass and the governor signed to law a six-week abortion ban. This six-week ban goes into effect 30 days after a decision on the 15-week ban. So we are waiting. We are, of course, preparing for a decision. We don't expect to win. We expect for things to get worse before they get better. And that's also, of course, you know why many of us have been really excited about what's happening on the ground in our communities in codifying abortion rights. We're in the process of a ballot initiative right now under the work of an organization called Floridians Protecting Freedom. And we have already qualified for the ballot by signature. We collected 910,000 verified signatures. We do have all arguments before the same court on February 7th to get our language through. Um, so a lot to come, but I will say that our other organizations from abortion funds to abortion providers to just support organizations, we have been preparing for this moment and we're going to do everything we can to ensure access to care regardless of the political climate. That is awesome. And I just wanted to point out to our listeners, Florida has two fun facts. One, and a ballot initiative has to pass that 60% threshold like Ohio just shut down. And another fun fact about Florida is that you can't just get the approval from the Secretary of State on the language or the Attorney General, I can't remember who it is, the Supreme Court gets to weigh in in Florida on language and approving the ballot initiative. So two hurdles that I know you're jumping and that's awesome. You got it, Liz. I mean, the Supreme Court you know, oral arguments are also rooted in Attorney General Ashley Moody attempting to challenge our language. And candidly, I think her attempt is, is bullshit. I mean, she's basically saying that our language is vague. And yet viability as a determination for abortion access was a law in Florida for a decade. So her to say that that language is confusing to the voters is, is incredibly disingenuous and just desperate. She's trying everything she can to knock this language off. And though we are dealing with the same Supreme Court that is just saying disappointed, there is a difference between what they're basing their decision on here compared to a typical case, because it's not about the context per se. It's about ensuring that it is uh, fitting into statute in the sense that it's a single issue for the voters and that it also is clear you know, what the issue is. So we're hopeful that with the state Supreme Court 
already demonstrating approval or at least close to approval, waiting for decisions still on recreational cannabis, their decision to not gerrymander our judicial circuits, which was an attempt by Republicans last year to do that on a procedural matter, we, we feel that we have a path forward versus on the political front with this court. So we're going to have all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. We have an amazing legal team. Uh, but obviously, supporting the efforts of Floridians Protecting Freedom is going to be impactful, not just to us as Floridians, but to the entire country, especially the Southeast. Wow, that's great. So will you have weed and abortion on the ballot, uh, hopefully? <laughs> that's the goal. It's a winning that is combo. The goal. It's a winning combo. Just ask uh, Santorum. Santorum knows how a uh, winning combo that is for us. It's yeah, sexy. we like to say weed and weed it out uh, are the two I kind of things it. that we do. I love it. I love it. That is the goal. Okay, so there's this new legislation that just dropped like two weeks ago with a whole lot of new full-on abortion ban language in it that is really, really terrifying, including using language that's not really medical, like fertilization. Can you talk a little bit about this new legislation and what the expected impact would be? For sure. I mean, we have seen what is basically an oral abortion ban filed by um, Representative Barrero in South Florida. It is a, a total abortion ban, eliminates even exceptions for rape and incest, and it puts into place uh, attempts to further criminalize any type of uh, mailing of abortion medication, which we do expect more people to look towards self-managed abortion care in the face of a, a six-week ban, let alone a complete abortion ban. So it is an attempt to further criminalize individuals who are helping abortion seekers to access the care that they need and they want. And it's it's incredibly punitive and, again, feeds into the fear tactics that politicians use in scaring people from making decisions that's right for themselves and their families. There's one part of the bill that really stuck out to me where they say that a pregnant person can bring a claim against someone who sends them pills. That's not entrapment? What is that? <laughs> right. And that's exactly what it is. It's basically trying to create a, a hostile environment uh, for someone who is going to provide you with medication. And this, this further feeds into a point that we've been making for a long time, is that you really cannot enforce a total abortion ban unless you're going to criminalize the patient and people who help the patient. Now, this bill attempts to say that you know the, the individual, the abortion seeker, is not going to be criminalized. But at the end of the day, to pursue the elements of this policy, there's going to be some sort of invasion of privacy, whether it's you checking someone's trash can to see if they had you know, the wrapper of medication or even checking their waste. There have been anti-abortion extremists who want to check wastewater to look for evidence of, of self-termination. I mean, it is wild how far these individuals will go for their extreme agenda. And so at the end of the day, again, the notion of, of, of allowing for individuals who are helping to access abortion be criminalized across state lines, even maybe across, you know, nations, it's likely not even constitutional what Florida is attempting to do, but it just is another example of how far Republicans will go to exert their political control over others. And it's like, as we're talking, you know, we, we talked earlier in the show about this trend to call helping somebody get an abortion, you know, trafficking, human trafficking. You know, and we're seeing that trend happen in states, Idaho and Tennessee and Oklahoma. And this whole like shipping pills through the mail it has this whole vibe. And Last week, we talked to scholar Grace Howard just about how people who can become pregnant and people who are pregnant are a new class of person that has less rights 
you know? And so it feels like the dehumanization piece is so wild. And, you know, I think this leads into DeSantis dropping out of the race. I'm sorry for your loss. (laughs) (laughs) Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. prayers. Just because he has to come back to Florida. (laughs) Thank you, because I'm glad we saved America from him. But like, we're (laughs) stuck with him, y'all. We're stuck with him. Well, this is what I was wondering, too. It's, you know, he signed that six-week ban on the dead of night. It was like a secret signed bill, not in front of Florida. You know, you have almost a million signatures on this ballot initiative. I feel like abortion is the best running mate any politician can have right now. How do you think all of the shenanigans around him and then also all of us being able to have permission to talk about abortion and to be, for once, proactively talking about pro-abortion things, how will that affect his future and career in all of this? My hope is that more and more politicians, everyday people help break the stigma that surrounds abortion to talk about it more, to tell our stories and to make it toxic to ban abortion, which I think is already happening. But to your point, Liz, like myself and others for years have been saying abortion is a winning issue, but nobody believed us. And so we would be like constantly just like pushing people to realize this is not something to be afraid of. It is healthcare. It is important to people across political lines. There are, of course, more effective ways to talk about reproductive rights, to be persuasive, to bring in new people who maybe traditionally want to see themselves as supporting reproductive rights. But by no means should you run away from it. Because I have I have worked with so many elected officials before I became one, now that I am one, where you know folks were just incredibly hesitant to say the A word. And even when we, when we had a bill about abortion in front of us, they didn't want to debate it or talk on it. They were hesitant to get involved. And now I feel like it is the opposite. I feel like now people are running towards the issue. They, they want to be more helpful. And whether it's selfish that they want to, right? Because to your point, they see it as important in their in their electoral plans or it's, it's more altruistic. I think either or is important because we need more voices to amplify just the humanity of this, the, the, the aspect of self-determination, of freedom, how this has nothing to do with political partisanship and everything to do with someone making a decision that is right for them and their families. When it comes to concept of DeSantis, he really is an extreme dude. Like he wasn't faking it. He wasn't trying to fit into some sort of you know, uh, political image or optics. He he really is an extreme character. I mean, when you saw his removal of Andrew Warren, one of our state attorneys in Florida, because Andrew Warren had publicly stated that he would not incarcerate someone who is seeking an abortion. Reality check, like Florida doesn't, again, we don't even have a law that wouldn't, now it's unclear. Prior to that, there wasn't a law that that said somebody would be criminalized for this. So he was just expressing his, his opinion. The governor used that to remove him. And the governor's footnotes on this executive order, he wrote some of the craziest anti-abortion stuff that you've seen that fits the stereotype of every picketer, you know, outside a clinic, right? Like really reflecting some of the worst perspectives out there. So with that said, you know, I, I'm hopeful that he will be less relevant in the future. But I, I'll tell you, in the context of Florida, it's hard because Florida really has become ground zero for extremism. We have conservative think tanks who call Florida home, New College of Florida, and it's also conservative takeover. Christian Rufo's on the board at New College. You see so many grifters just making money. Moms for Liberty. 
moms, moms for, for thruples. Yes, moms <laughs> for thruples, right? In Florida. Don't get me wrong, like we're up against a fight, but we are fighters here in Florida. I mean, especially in Central Florida, we just had a huge win. We flipped a house seat from red to blue, District 35. And we did that by focusing on two main issues, property insurance and abortion. And so I feel very confident that we have a path forward, but it's all about working together, being strategic, uh, having message discipline, and of course, creating room for other, others to join us. We have to be willing to welcome folks who don't feel like they have a, a party that represents them. I have many constituents who are registered Republicans, and they've actually told me, I, I feel like a mutt. I don't have a family. I don't have a, a party to go to. And we got to create space for folks that, you know, are, are looking for a new home. And so I, I really do take pride in, you know, being a strong values-based progressive. At the same time, being a progressive for me means having empathy, finding opportunities for collaboration and welcoming more people into the fold. We talked to Rebecca Traster recently and Moji was on a panel with Rebecca Traster and they had this conversation that we just thought was really important. And that is activists brought abortion to the politicians. And the politicians don't seem to either understand or are unwilling to talk to those of us to help themselves speak better on abortion, right? Right. So how would you suggest that people like us who do communicating would love to talk to folks and help them get the language they need that would be helpful for them and help her to talk to her about the constituency. What do you think the best way is to reach folks? Like how can yeah. we reach, reach our electeds to say, listen to us. We'd love to have a hang with you. I, I love that question, Liz. So I do, as a member of the Democratic Caucus in Florida House, I'm our abortion point person. It's a great job to have. And so I take it upon myself to invite our, our grassroots organizations, our activist-based organizations, to facilitate workshops for lawmakers and their staff. And part of that workshop, it's it's an information download. So we we let you know what's the state of abortion nationally and in Florida. We dive into if there's any pending legislation, what are those bills and what do they do? We take questions around that because most lawmakers don't read the bills. So we have to like kind of unpack that for them. And then we do a communications training. And, and so I think a part of it is, it's another example of, collaborative governance, right? The inside outside strategy. And so if you can identify one or two lawmakers to build that relationship with, and they can facilitate, you know, some sort of workshop and, and conversation dialogue, it might be easier than trying to meet with folks one-on-one. -on -one. If there is an opportunity to convene, I think that's the strongest approach. And there are a lot of organizations that can also help with convening, you know, whether they're abortion-centered or just, you know, in the in the space of reproductive rights or uh, progressive politics and, and, and issue-based advocacy that can help create those spaces. Because it is really important. What really frustrates me, honestly, is when politicians who've never championed abortion use abortion to fundraise, where it's like, can you please fundraise for an abortion fund or like a clinic in your area. Like I do get frustrated by that because it's so transactional. So we have to help create an environment where politicians can be more transformational in their impact, can help break the stigma by talking about this accurately. And I do think that our, our community-based organizations and, and activists and, and leaders like yourselves play a really big role in that. Wow. Thank you so much. That was such a comprehensive and actually really, really great way to think about how to address this. Um, you've been so helpful and so great in just explaining some of the nuances of Florida. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, please come back anytime. 
Thank you so much for having me. I love to come back and y'all just keep, keep up the fight. Thank you for amplifying what's happening in the sunshine state. Don't forget about us. We're doing good. We will not. Never. That's the one thing we don't do is like we, we, we're always there. So let us know what you need. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you're in Florida, make sure to get involved with Floridians protecting freedom. And once the initiative is officially on the ballot, join them to help get out the vote. Do it, do it, do it. Hey, we're bringing it back. It's been gone. But now it's the party game that's faster than Monopoly and more fun than Taboo. It's six degrees of abortion. This is the game when Moji takes a story from the news and it has no connection to abortion. But I have six chances to try to make that connection. Let's see if I can do it. Moji, what's happening? This one's going to be really easy, but I just thought it was hilarious. Former presidential candidate and a former 30-year-old version, 50-year-old Tim Scott, proposed to his girlfriend this week. And uh, I would like you to just take a little time to connect this bachelor to abortion. Um, Tim Scott's abortion story is one of my favorite abortion stories. And I haven't been able to tell it because he's been running for office. And we are a nonprofit that can't explicitly talk about politicians who are running for office. So. Tim Scott, if you don't know him, junior senator from South Carolina, actually said in public, in front of a microphone, to the press that he wanted to really hold Democrats accountable because Democrats were trying to make laws that allowed abortion up to 52 weeks of pregnancy. <laughs> Uh, he just said that like two months ago. <laughs> He's such a mess that it is. It's next level. Great. Right. And so we'll put the link to him saying that it is astoundingly embarrassing. Like, I don't know what Tim Scott thinks, but that would be a three month old infant. <laughs> so Have at it, Tim Scott. Again, going back to the point we made, which was what the less people know about pregnancy the more anti-abortion they are. I win. Yeah, no, you won. I knew you would. And I was excited to hear. <laughs> I'm excited. Good Lord. Wow. You know, we do this work and it's grueling work and it's hard work and it's work that would not be possible without the tireless help of our sponsors. Liz, can you tell them who's sponsoring the pod this week? Are you a Christian woman who's feeling despair down there, wondering if that cramping is gas or a gift from God? And how do you determine if what is in your uterus is sanctioned by God? Ask your doctor about Woomba, the first Christian technology that examines your uterus and clears it free of unholy debris. Forget the pregnancy tests or the pelvic exams. The Woomba's smart cervix system creates a virtual map of your uterus and your doctor can guide its blessing sensors with precision suction that identifies all the uterine flotsam not sanctioned by God and removes it in a matter of minutes. And voila, your uterus is clean and restored to the way God intended. Woomba, a divine aspiration. You know, Liz, that sounds a lot like abortion. It sounds exactly like abortion. It is an abortion. <laughs> I love this particular fake commercial because it's what they do. Like, I remember Rick Santorum's <laughs> wife had an abortion at five months and they tried to call it some other thing. And mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. like, remember that person in North Carolina, that politician 
who switched parties. Her name is Trisha Cotham. Yes, Trisha Cotham. And she told her abortion story on the floor of the house, but said yes. it was a some kind of spontaneous miscarriage. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we know that Centaurum's wife and Trisha, they didn't have abortions. They had a Woomba. They had a Woomba. <laughs> is right. <laughs> Good Lord. All right. Should we move on to our next guest? Really lighten up the joint? Absolutely. I'm really excited. Our next guest is a drag superstar, actor, recording artist, and walking, talking fashion encyclopedia. Please welcome Shay Coulee. Hi, Shay. Hey, Shay. Hi, Moji. Hi to Liz. How are you? Great. We are so happy you're here. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to jump right into it. You are a RuPaul's Drag Race icon. And one of my favorite things you said on Drag Race and the outfit you were wearing when you said it was sublime, um, was that your drag is a love letter to Black women. Yes. Can you elaborate on that statement and feel free to shit on the haters with your answer? <laughs> yeah. In that moment, especially because I was, uh, the look that I was wearing on that runway, the theme was bows, bows, bows. And uh, the look that I chose to embody was my mom's junior year prom dress. And I just always really loved looking at that photo. I think this was 1969. So, you know, she had this huge beehive, these like really classy, like opera length gloves and this beautiful pink dress. And for me, she was always my entryway and the way that I understood and viewed glamour growing up. And in addition to her, it was just like all of like my aunts that surrounded me, women at the church, you know, and I just grew up in an environment where there were so many incredible, diverse Black women who enriched my understanding of femininity because they could be both incredibly strong yet vulnerable. They could be extremely beautiful yet tough. And they just, to me, were such an, uh, an incredible example of what divine femininity looks like to me. And so in that moment, it truly just encapsulated how I feel about my drag because when I think about it I'm like all I ever want to do with my drag is to just uplift and edify the beauty that is black women love that and you know it's like when I think about that a I'm always stunned that more Hollywood glam types are not scouring back in that era for like gowns and like recreating that I'm stunned yes but really more to the point that you said that I love is you named all of the spaces that back in the day, Black women were allowed to show up. And when you look at old protest photos, right, of Selma mm -hmm. and of people marching, they were had bags and hats and gloves. Mm -hmm. And like, it was a testament also to you are not going to erase my humanity and my beauty as I fight for my freedom. And I love that also. Yes. So it's like, we were going to ask you about, you know, and you answered it, you know, where your fashion journey came from. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the Midwest too. You grew up in Indiana, I think, right? Yeah. And I'm in Minnesota. Okay, right on. At what point did you feel that pull towards beauty? Just the tactical nature of the beauty, right? The fabric 
and the shiny parts of it because I I'm always curious because we're in the mud 80% of the time. What when did that come? Um I would say tactile wise, it was just being able to go into my mom's closet as a little kid, you know, to be able to like touch and feel like just all the glamour that was like hanging in there, you know, just like beads and sequins, you know, for her like going out like cocktail kind of moments. One story that um, I'm quite infamous for in our family. (laughs) Personally, I'm not trying to blame anybody, but my mom had her wedding dress stored in my closet in my bedroom. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a little kid and an eccentric one at that. And so um, I remember just always being like, oh, my God, this beautiful dress. Oh, I love this beautiful dress that's in my closet. So glam and in the garment bag, all of that, you know. And my favorite movie when I was younger was the original Parent Trap from the 60s. Haley Mills. Yeah, and you want to know what's so funny? I think it's crazy because the remake, when the remake came out, I wanted to say I was, I was like maybe like eight or nine. Imagine an eight-year-old being excited for a remake that is literally supposed to appeal to them as if it's supposed to be their first time being introduced to this story. But I'm excited about it, mostly because I'm obsessed with the classic with Haley Mills. But if anybody hasn't seen that one, because the girls are a little bit more adult, they're 15, there's like a scene where they have this dance where, you know, they're interacting with the boys camp. And one of the sisters, um, I believe it's Sharon, is like up like at, at this patio and she has this pink, cute kind of cupcake 60s dress. And Susan and her like girls come up behind her while she's talking to this boy and with this large pair of scissors literally cut out the entire back and petticoat of the dress and there's the scene you see her walking back into the dance and like literally her underwear are just showing because it's like cartoonish the way the dress is just cut out the back one day thought that i was going to play the parent trap game oh no and my mother's wedding dress was hanging and you already know where this is going oh you need to finish that take us on the journey oh no i took a pair of scissors and I cut big chunk out of the back of my mom's wedding dress. She fully walked in on me, caught me like red-handed, was like so beside herself. She was so upset, you know, like couldn't even bear to even look at me. It was so upset. Needless to say, I got a terrible whooping from my dad. Look, back in the day, I grew up in a house where I, I got spanked <laughs> growing up. Not often, but that one was definitely, in my parents' eyes, a spankable offense. And I remember getting it good for cutting off that wedding dress. But, you know, I couldn't help myself. I loved the glamour. I loved it. Let me tell you what. I would not in a million years with a gun (laughs) to my head have thought that's where that story was going. I thought it was literally going to be like either... You know, you wore it, you you had it the whole time, and then you tried it on. You cut it up. No, I cut that shit up. Also, you haven't learned your lesson because what people can't see is you had scissors right by your hand while you're talking on the podcast. Shears, like not just any scissors, like shears. I got serious looking. When you have to make a quick alteration, you always need a good pair. What a fashion girly. (laughs) That makes me wonder if you know. We have a lot of friends who went to Columbia. We know you went to Columbia and you studied fashion yes. design. And I'm wondering if some subconscious was like, you need to go 
and you need to go make costs. You need to repent and sew over and over and over for the sake of the <laughs> I mean, and it wasn't just my mom's wedding dress. I would cut up my dad's dress socks and turn them into evening gowns for my sister's Barbies. Oh. Ooh, they would be looking so good. And he's like rouged. I would like rouge them up like, the, and they would be in these black little silky. <laughs> oh my God, that's incredible. <laughs> I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes. I, you had the bug, the sewing bug early on. Yeah, at a young age. Yeah, my my dad's mother, my grandmother, she sewed a lot. And she also collected dolls. So I learned how to sew from her. I mean, I learned, a, like, as far as, like, tactile skills, I learned how to sew from her. I learned how to garden from her. She was so incredible with her hands. She was a creator. You know, she just loved to create things. She loved to get her hands down in the earth and cultivate and just grow tons and tons of plants. So I definitely inherited that from her for sure. You're like a Renaissance woman. You are. Like, I'm in the dirt. I'm, I'm sewing gowns. I'm keeping shears next to my computer. Yeah. <laughs> Say, we are not a fashion podcast, but we are a bodily autonomy and pro-liberation podcast. And obviously choosing to do drag is fundamentally a form of radical self-expression. So what are the unexpected ways that your fashion choices, like even your mundane ones, help free us all? Or is sometimes a sweater just a sweater? Oh, that's a really good, that's a really good question. Because, you know, if we're talking about, like, bodily autonomy, it really wasn't until I started doing drag that I understood the types of reactions that cis men have when they're perceiving feminine clothing. Because... When I put on a tight dress, that was the first time I was experiencing having my butt squeezed by a stranger. I was like, what? And I remember I was in a I was in an environment with just like all my girlfriends. And I was like, girls, can you believe that these guys just like we could just come out here and just touch my body without my permission? Isn't that crazy? And they're all like, yeah, bitch. Welcome yeah. to Tuesday. That is the reality. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> they were like, you're not saying anything that's shocking us. But it was so jarring to me because I never experienced that before. Because, you know, as I'm presenting day to day as male and pants and a sweater or a sweatshirt, that elicits a different reaction versus when I was in drag and dolled up and, you know, wearing feminine clothing, presenting in a feminine way, was I then being faced with these guys being chauvinistic, just gross, misogynistic pigs. And I just was, it, it, it helped me become a better feminist because I was like, oh shit, I am seeing it firsthand and I hate how disgusting it makes me feel. Well, and it's so funny because we all just love sparkles. We all love glamour. We all love what that is. And it does turn us into a bit of, you know, this object of like, because it's not based in real flesh, right? It's like, how do I adorn this flesh mm-hmm. with all these pretty shiny things? And then that immediately tells cis men that we are now some fondle toy that just gets to happen. Open for business. 
<laughs> it's like for the cis men out here who might be listening to this feminist podcast who haven't quite clocked this yet from my experience and the experiences of my female and female identifying friends. Everybody is dressing for their own reflection. They're dressing so that when they look in the mirror, they get a piece of joy from what it is that they're perceiving about themselves. What they have on their back is not to attract you. It's nothing for cis men. It just, I just want y'all to know that it's just not, it's not for you. So I mean, like, it's, it's crazy how they just immediately assume like, oh my God, this is definitely for my attention. I'm just like, um, babes, like 99% of the time, like the girls are dressing the way that they're dressing because they like the way it makes them feel. They don't give a fuck about your opinion. That's a PSA that is never not, we, it can't be overstated. Right. That's a PSA that can <laughs> like, never be overstated. <laughs> right. <laughs> so speaking of joy and self-expression, let's talk about this new show. Yes. The Love Ball Tour that is starting February 22nd in Chicago. Will you yes. bring us up to speed? Let, let, let the listeners know what to expect. Yeah, you know, honestly, just... Uh... On the page of continuing this love letter to Black women, to Black femininity, and just also the exploration of the love that I have for drag, you know, it's going to be starring myself, Monet Exchange, Lala Ree, Lex Noir London, and Tace. And uh, what's special about this show is that all of us have original music, albums, songs that we perform. And the thing that's crazy is a lot of times with the standard drag shows that you see out there, they don't really have the infrastructure built in to uh, really help produce and elevate like live acts, you know, they always just kind of like hit play and they want the girls to lip sync. But I wanted to give all of these great, incredible queens the opportunity to come together and to produce our songs in a way that they really should be showcased to people, you know, give the full pop star fantasy. There is going to be combinations of lip syncing too, but it's just going to be a really great exploration of love, love for one another, and mostly love for oneself. So I just want um, the audiences to come and be ready to be entertained and inspired by a project that is so deeply thought about and curated and put together with the intent to exemplify and exalt the art that is Black feminine divinity. Well, I guess it's Amen. Is that, is that going to play here? Because I feel like we just went to drag Black femininity church. I love it yeah. that you just like brought us there. And it's so awesome. Shay, what would you tell folks right now? You know, the, the world is on fire in so many places. And we're seeing so many states that are full of hate. Do not understand the joy trying to ban drag. Like, what would you say to somebody who is the version of you, they're 12 years old, they're trying to find their way, and they need some inspiration? What would you say to, like, keep them going and to remind them about the love in the world? Because I always think it's important to put that out there. I feel like it is so important 
if you can, for especially those younger ones and people who feel isolated, luckily, even though it can be a terrible place sometimes, luckily, we have the internet. And I encourage you to just try and reach out and find like-minded people with similar experiences that you can connect to and share with and build community so that when you have the opportunity to hopefully physically remove yourself from the oppressive space that you're in and get to somewhere that's more accepting, you'll have at least a support system that's there to help you through those tough times because it can be really difficult to physically be surrounded by people who have so many limited ideas and understanding of just what it means to be human. And it's sad that a lot of people just can't operate from a place of love. They rather choose hate, which A, requires so much more energy. It requires so much more energy to hate than to love. And B, it ages you and it makes you ugly. So um, I would say that, you know, continue to operate from a place of love. Find people that can be your support system and just know that you have something special. You have a light in you that is there for a reason. There's only one you on this whole entire universe. And like, no matter how big or small, we all have a purpose. So it's just about finding yours and making sure that you shine as bright as you possibly can. Well, there's nobody who shines brighter than you and brings so much joy. This has been so much fun (laughs) to just be able to talk to you after watching you on Drag Race. You know, you're just this ray of light and you're funny and you're talented and you're beautiful. And (laughs) thank you. And um, we're glad you're in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Go see Shea Coulee on her Love Ball tour, kicking off February 22nd in Chicago. Tour dates at SheaCoulee.com. And you can follow them on socials, IG, X, TikTok, at Shea Coulee. Liz, that's our show. That is our show. Yeah. Wow, it was a lot. I learned a lot. a lot of show. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Anna Eskamani. Make sure you get involved with Floridians Protecting Freedom to protect abortion on the 2024 ballot. If you are freaked out about the Chevron Doctrine, go sign our petition at aafront.org and ask the FDA to use their power to protect Mifepristone. Did we make you smarter? Make you laugh today? Show us some love by liking, subscribing, and giving us five stars. Plus, stay connected with us on social media at Abortion Front across all platforms. Let's turn our enragement into engagement. Also, appearance alert. As I said, I will be joining Michelle Norris for uh, her book launch of Hidden Conversations at the Westminster Town Hall Forum in Minneapolis. That's February 1st, and all the details are at mnhum.org and we will put that link in the show notes. Looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? We've got a five-part activist training series, Operation Save Abortion at operationsaveabortion.com. And visit our super cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. This week's featured action is from Friends in Nebraska, The Nebraska Abortion Resources are hosting Protect Our Rights, a weekly virtual volunteer training. Learn how to collect petition signatures, how to talk about abortion with your family and friends, and get informed about the campaign to protect abortion rights in Nebraska. 
The next event is January 31st at 5.30 p.m. Central Time. Link can be found in our activist calendar. Join us next week. Activists Renee Bracey Sherman and Regina Mahone will be here talking about their new abortion history podcast, The A-Files, which unpacks the long and hidden history of abortion right here in the U.S. of A. We'll also be speaking with Gretchen Sison, sociologist and author of the forthcoming novel, Relinquished, The Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood. And we'll get into the funny with comedian and content creator, Dylan McKeever. Join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remedy Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. And finally, we leave you with Idaho Senator Chuck Winder, a man who shows his whole ass when he tells us what he thinks is to blame when his breadsticks are late. We complain about we don't have service workers. We don't have enough of this. We don't have enough people to do this. Uh, well, I think there's a reason. Not It's not just low birth rate, uh, but it is the number of abortions that have occurred uh, that many of those were elective. Uh, many of them were probably medically necessary. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is popping, we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.